Oh, there, there are a lot of hats. You know, what's funny. The, the women are all pretty when they're walking in. And then when they walk out, everyone just looks fucking wasted. Like sweaty and rich. Wasted. Yeah. Rich and poor alike. Everyone just looks fucked. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean, two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land with the mason ring and trouser in his perfect hands. Here comes George in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington. Hello and welcome to another POTUS Life. I'm Ryan Markley. With me is my co-host and one of the sexiest men on the planet, Justin Hot Buns Ozinga. Well, Justin, it's uh, March 14th today. Happy Pi Day. Happy Pi Day 3.14. I hate that, but I'll just say it anyways. What about Mall Day? Remember Mall Day? Well, anyway, oh, this is yeah. uh, uh, as we record this. Yeah, uh, it's four minutes until supposedly MSNBC is has uh, some of Trump's tax returns. No, where'd they get them? Yeah. Oh, let's... it's it's been liked. I'm gonna navigate myself over to the website. Just and to... predictions. Uh, what? Oh. Polling. Where should we do some? We got polling? four minutes to predict. What is it? Is this where, where was this at? MSNBC. I think it's Rachel Maddow show. I fucking love Rachel Maddow. I do. I really do. I mean, I hate that kind of reporting, but you hate the what? She's she's not dumb. No, no, that's what that's why I'm like. I guess what that's why I enjoy her. She is so, in my opinion, well spoken. And it's sensational in a way, but I think she really does kind of cut to the heart of things. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, you're just a dumb liberal. I'm a dumb liberal. So my, my predictions are, mm-hmm. it's not. <laughs> it, what was that? It could be. But I think the, the most the most upsetting thing to the president would be Tax returns that indicate that he's not Ooh. as big of a deal as he says he is. Oh no, that's what I think. That's what I, I don't know. Expect. I've, I've, I don't think you'll find anything fishy in there. What I think you'll if you take a gander of how many things he, if you take a gander of how many things he has his grubby little mitts into, it's like <laughs> it's hard to fuck up. Yeah, like you can you can bankrupt a con- a casino and still be. This golden-haired, golden-chaired cunt, and everything is hunky-dory. Uh, did you have you listened to the most recent Dan Carlin? Uh, yeah, the one about nuclear n- nuclear weapons. Maybe weapons I have mass destruction. Maybe I haven't listened to the most recent one. It was the sorry, the episode. About? The yes. episode I'm referring to is one where he's uh, basically 
doesn't know what to do with anything. Oh yeah. I don't think I've listened to the most recent. Oh, that's his common sense podcast, right? Yeah. 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 His most recent common sense yeah. podcast. He basically was just like, I don't know what to do. I, I wanted an outsider. What to do anymore. Which was kind of just really weird because I'm like, well, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I just really like your commentary on things that are happening. But I do think it's interesting when a person like him doesn't know where to go with something. It's it's fascinating to watch him spin those wheels or listen to him. Yeah, he's kind of just squirming. Do you think he's... Is he like... He just li- came out with like a... It's like a five plus hour show on nuclear weapons nuclear weapons (laughs) i'm gonna have to listen to that is it uh on his hardcore history yes oh right on good shit yeah i'm gonna give that a listen i do i like his history commentary but i don't like his i don't think that i like his political commentary as much no definitely not yeah not a fan I mean, it's an interesting perspective to listen to. Yeah, I think he's really educated and I think he's intelligent. Absolutely. But then he just, I don't know, sometimes he goes places. Like he feels yeah. like he's entitled to teach me or whatever. He's a he's a way less awful version of Joe Rogan. Yeah. I was yeah, I I think I could see that actually. I see what you're saying there. <sighs> Joe Rogan is such a cunt. But I really like his comedy. But he, oh, I like his comedy too. But unfortunately for us, I think he's the liberal side of, uh, you know, info wars, if you will. Yes. He's, he's there. Yes, he is. <laughs> like, he's just, uh, it's like, dude, chill, man. Just chill. Bruh. And he just like panders to whatever view his guests have. But oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. We digress. We di- we do. We really. So since the last time we recorded, you know, a bunch of crazy shit has happened concerning POTUS stuff. And we can't even get into any of it without <laughs> taking up too much time. So uh, should we do a special? I hope you're ready for World War Three? Yeah. <laughs> should we do a special sidebar podcast on that? Just give, them a, give We'll do a little common sense of our own. Yeah, I actually was thinking about that a couple of months ago. But anyways. <laughs> <sighs> so. Uh, oh, we will be coming to Washington D.C. at the end of April to uh, look at uh, Mount Vernon. And some statues and the Capitol. Maybe get inappropriate with some of those statues. I don't know. Not the little girl statue. Not that statue. Washington is the new Vegas. Maybe, maybe climb up on Lincoln's lap. Give it a little sit, you know? So if one of our 12 listeners lives in the D.C. greater area, maybe come and have a drink with us. Send us an email. That would be rather fun, actually. You should do that. What's our email? Oh, uh, contact at POTUS.life. Jolly good for that. Okay, let's recap. Let's do some recap. So, uh, 
where did we go in episode eight? This is episode nine, by the way. We'll call it Magic Mike XXL. Anyway, in episode eight, George Washington assumes command of the Continental Army on July 4th. Remember, this is when he tours his troop with General Lee in the 1700s equivalent of a boombox. He only had 14,500 troops able to serve versus the roughly 12,000 men the British had at this time. And their camps were really fucking dirty. Uh, They also had no gunpowder. Remember, he thought that he had 308 barrels of gunpowder, but actually only 36. Oops, someone miscounted. They did try to source some more gunpowder from Bermuda. However, General Howe had already made that move, and the gunpowder was gone. Uh Uh-oh. He also decides to inoculate his troops against smallpox, and this was considered by some his single greatest contribution to the Revolutionary War. Didn't want those soldiers getting that smallpox and dying off. And he looked damn good when he was inoculating his troops. Oh, he looked like a fucking badass. Oh, dude, I was reading some, by the way, just real quick, time out, T.O. I was reading some more horse riding stories about George Washington today. Oh, my God, that man seriously could ride a fucking horse. And, like, he just looked great, like, reading soldier accounts of, like, what they thought he looked like on top of that horse. Incredible. Fucking incredible. I kind of like started tearing up a little bit, got half chub <laughs> at one point. I don't, I just, I was in love. <sighs> George, he does it to me. Uh, last episode, we also talked a little bit about how George wasn't very happy with how the British were treating his captured men. Uh, he expected a certain amount of decorum and basically the British troops didn't even consider any of the Patriots officers because they weren't in any officially recognized army. Uh, Washington even allowed his, the, the men he captured, the British that he captured, to walk freely in his camp as long as they promised not to escape. So that's pretty intense. We'll see this theme come up again and again, how George Washington wants to treat the British soldiers in a very respectable manner, even though the British soldiers are not treating his soldiers very well. Uh, We introduced George's favorite officers, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox. Nathaniel Green was the young Quaker who kept a neat military camp and read the Bible like a good Quaker man every single day. George loved it. Anyway, George was into how Green conducted himself, and he wanted Green to replace him if anything ever went down in battle. So definitely thought General Green was pretty all right. General Green was also a little handsome. Hello. Hey there. And... To the opposite of that, we have Henry Knox, a fat man. Although he was very well read, he was eventually named the Colonel of the Continental Artillery because uh, he just really liked to shoot those cannonballs. George once said to John Adams about Knox, I can say with truth there is no man in the United States with whom I have been in the habits of greater intimacy, no one whom I have loved more sincerely, nor any for whom I have had a greater friendship. So these two had a pretty big bromance going on, Henry Knox and George Washington. Lastly, we talked about how people were shit-talking George, specifically Thomas Paine. What these naysayers did not understand was the dire straits that Washington was in. He had no gunpowder. He had untrained men. He had sick men. He had men who were fighting each other. And he had no money. And Washington really couldn't tell anybody about all of that stuff. He needed to appear bigger than he was. And so no one knew that he didn't have gunpowder. No one knew that his men were basically 
incredibly untrained and sick and that they were fighting each other. And he definitely wanted to pretend like they had some money. So it's very much like the, the hardest campaign scenarios <laughs> on age of empires, almost friggin' impossible. You're just not going to do well at it. You know, I also wanted to mention something that we also talked about. Justin was that George listened to his generals, right? He wasn't just going out there. I'm George Washington. I'm the best general ever. You need to listen to me and do everything that I say. That wasn't how he rolled. Sometimes I think he wanted to do things that way, but I think he learned again early on in his English military career that if he just rushed in and assumed that he knew what he was talking about and started doing things, that he was going to fuck up royally and start the French and Indian War all over again. So he didn't want to do that. So I think he surrounded himself with incredibly intelligent people that he would argue with, with, that he would push against, that he would question, but ultimately would listen to them and take their counsel. And then that brings us to today's episode. Jolly good. Jolly good. So... In October 1775, King George III officially declared the colonies to be in a state of open rebellion. It was at this point Washington knew that like this reconciliation between the crown and the colonies would never happen. William Howe was placed in charge of the British military operations in the colonies, replacing General Thomas Gage, a.k.a. Blundering Tom. That's what they called him. Good old Blundering Tom. (sighs) On October 24, 1775, British ships landed at Falmouth, Massachusetts, and alerted the colonies to evacuate. These motherfuckers set fire to 300 homes in Massachusetts. No big deal. Not a big deal. It's fine. It's It's not exactly Conan the Destroyer. Well, what they wanted to do was inflict psychological warfare onto these colonists, right? He wanted them, General Howe, that is, General William Howe wanted them to know, these colonists, to know that they weren't fucking around. If you're going to mess with the British, we're going to fucking... They wanted early quits. We're going to land in that foul mouth, and we're going to fucking set fire to the bitch, all right? You know? Yeah, and I would have given up right away. (laughs) Goodbye. Here, here's if my home. Came here's in my and things. T- Let's go. Taking Let's my go. refrigerator, I would give up. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. These, a lot of the British people, uh, I mean, the British military members would come into these people's homes and just fucking steal what they whatever they wanted. There were no rules, you know. The British didn't really. They treated the colonists. They would go all Goldilocks on that. Oh shit. yeah, no, totally, totally. Ah, I don't like this. Ah, that looks great. Ah, we're gonna take this. Ah, we're gonna take that. Ah, we're gonna take. You know, you have this whole field of food. We're going to eat everything. And then all those cattle that you raise, we're going to kill all of them and eat those things, too. Fuck you very much. That's why that shit is in our Bill of Rights. Right. Well, and George obviously was not very happy about this. Right. It's kind of this good playing against evil, I think, in some ways. So George positions himself, is, or is trying to position himself, I think, as a savior to these people. And he knows that that needs to be the news that gets out 
and then that these British people are evil and that they're just going to come and rape and pillage and burn. So things are starting to progress. We have multiple military movements happening at once. In response to Falmouth, the General Court of Massachusetts allowed private vessels to patrol the coast. Washington outfitted several vessels with arms and would allow these privateers to keep one-third of the value of the British ships that were captured. So he's allowing these fishermen, essentially, to outfit their boats and just patrol the waters. And if they find any British vessel that they think they can overtake, fucking go to town, haul that thing back in, and you get to keep a third of it. George, at this time, also sends General Knox on a tour of upstate New York in search of any artillery that he could find, right? So they didn't have artillery. They didn't have any gunpowder. So he's going to send his friend, General Knox. He's like, dude, go. And I think it's interesting, actually, that Washington would send Knox by himself with that. Send Knox, put Knox in charge of a whole group of people that he was going to just send away with pretty vague orders, right? Like, hey, just go find me some fucking artillery, right? It's just like Age of Empires 2. I would, I would trust you if we were campaigning together. If there, was a, if there was a heavy fog of war going on and, and you know, you had to go do your thing and I had to go do my thing and you had to trust me, I'd, I think we could work well together, you know? Yeah, I've seen you in action. <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing how easy it is to conquer you at this game from the 90s. Yeah. And I... Not a milita- I'm not a military-minded man as far as movements go. Nope. I think I'd be a great spy, though. I will say that. Well, You'd be a good spy. You can, like, climb and stuff. It's true. It's true. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, we'll get more into the spy stuff later. That's some interesting shit. Yes. So, George also at this time was desiring some military action in Canada. Why? Well, I think that George believed that if the British still had a presence in Canada, even though the colonies were made independent, there would always be this threat on their northern border, right? And he couldn't have the, the War of 1812. Right. So he could see it in the future. So George Washington is a time traveler. At this time, George also instructs Colonel Benedict Arnold to meet General Richard Montgomery outside of Quebec. So he's sending Benny Arnold, Mr. Benedict Arnold himself, more about him later, to meet Richard Montgomery outside of Quebec, Quebec. Canada. Um, the two were to lead the troops on a military assault of the walled city. So Quebec had a wall around it. And Arnold really impressed Washington by leading the men he was given through horrible conditions. So when Benedict Arnold left New York and headed up to Canada, it basically was a fucking shit show. There were storms, there were swollen wi- rivers. The men did not have rations to make it to Quebec, so literally they were forced to eat their soap, their candles. They boiled moccasins and would chew on them, just anything. These people were starving. So George was really impressed when he got to fucking Canada, and he wrote back, and he's like, hey, we're in Canada, and it was like a real shit show. So 
you know, I just wanted to, I need to tell that story so that when we talk more about Benedict Arnold later, we have this uh, idea of how much George Washington trusted Arnold to both lead men and push them through very horrible conditions. He just really trusted the dude. Benedict Arnold needs his own podcast. Yeah. That's what we're saying. Yeah. That will come later. Um, it's such a, we only know the one, well, most people only know, you know, you're a Benedict Arnold, you're a turncoat, you're Jon Snow. <laughs> Benedict <laughs> Arnold is very much like Jon Snow. Yeah. But I, uh, I think some of the, uh, the motives were much different. With the, blew my own mind. The lady fuckings and the whatnots. We'll get to it. Um, we'll get to it. So George was George Washington was really certain that these two were going to be victorious. Uh, so certain that when he sent Arnold up there, he asked, hey, when you get up there, bring back some blankets, clothing, guns, gut, definitely that gunpowder, definitely the gunpowder, and anything else that might, you know, be of use to us. So Washington expecting to hear correspondence back, right? It's kind of waiting around like, oh, I really can't wait to hear how the, you know, how it goes up in Quebec and how we're going to win. We're always going to, we're Americans. We always win. We're going to win. And so he's sitting around waiting and he gets a message back from uh, General Schuyler, which actually is uh, Alexander Hamilton's soon to be father-in-law. Anyway, um, General Schuyler sent correspondence back to Washington announcing a crushing defeat against the American forces at Quebec. General Montgomery was dead and Colonel Benedict Arnold suffered a severe leg injury. More on that. This won't be his first leg injury. Won't be the last. And apparently he was faced with uh, just experienced British troops, right? Montgomery and Arnold had inexperienced men, and they fled. And they were eating soap, so. <laughs> Maybe a little crazy from sniffing the bath salts, eating the soap, boiling the moccasins. Um, all of this was pretty bad news for everyone. Everyone except Arnold. Yeah, he had a busted leg, but his bravery and determination were noticed by Washington. So that was totally going to get him somewhere later. Good old Arnold. Fucking, fucking Benny. Benny, Benny Arnold. Back to beating a dead horse. Boy, was George plagued with shitty militiamen. They weren't good. He always kind of felt like that McDonald's store manager. <laughs> You know, he finally gets some of these teenagers trained to make Big Macs only to have their enlistments expire. Well, can we say, I mean, just time out. They were like fucking teenagers. Like we need to, maybe we haven't gone over that yet. Dude, you just got good at making the Big Mac. Stop leaving me. (laughs) That has to be rough. And, And really, a lot of these... Dudes were like like McDonald's aged employees, teenagers, barely had hair on their chests. If like any, 13, at all. 14, 15 teenagers. Yeah, Genghis Khan farts on your enlistment agreement. But Washington is down in the dumps. His spirit has never been lower. If he had known from the start what he would be dealing with, he probably wouldn't have accepted the command at all. He was reluctant as it is. 
He said as much in his private correspondence, but cheer up, George. Come on, George. And also we should mention that a lot of people don't know hardly anything about the participation of African-Americans in the revolution. Maybe you saw the movie Patriot where there was, I think there was a token black guy. Yep. Well, they weren't exactly called African-Americans at the time, but you get the picture. Washington wasn't exactly thrilled on blacks being in his military, but fuck you, George. Yeah. They were there there at the beginning in Lexington and Concord, up north, Bunker Hill, falsely labeled. But the Virginian didn't share the same view as the New, New Englanders did on the subject. He did not think that they could be the answer to his dwindling army. In fact, he and his generals rejected the idea of slaves as soldiers altogether. You know, beggars can't be choosers. So what the, did the British do? They announced that slaves can win their freedom by fighting for the British against their masters. And what the hell would you do in their position? I would be in the reddest coat so fast. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I'd be like, oh. I would be goddamn St. Nick on Christmas Eve. I can fight for my freedom over there? Yeah, fucking peace. Like, later, I'm out. That's very reasonable. And upon hearing that shit, Washington is like, oh, I was just kidding. My brothers from another mother. Brother. Come back and give us a hug. He writes a letter to John Hancock basically saying, hey, blacks are kind of pissed that I kicked them out of the army. (laughs) Well, good news, everyone. It was all just a test. I was just testing kidding. their just kidding. Uh, loyalty. A friend test. They can come back now. They're cool. It's all cool. The British are the real enemy of all the blacks. <laughs> oh, but just the free ones, okay? I need the <laughs> slaves to yeah. stay over at Mount Vernon. Keep planting. They did. They certainly did. And when would... Uh, I, we, I think we talked about this before, but... I mean, it's going to be a fucking while before black people are ever going to fight in the U.S. military. A fucking while. Like, into the 1900s. <laughs> so, blacks helped us uh, fight officially? for our freedom. Yeah, Vietnam, right? Korea. Vietnam. Was it Vietnam or Korea? That they were officially allowed? Yeah. Uh, probably Vietnam. So I don't know. Google it. Google. Anyway. So it's now Christmas Day, 1775, and the Continental Army is in winter corners at Cambridge. I kind of wanted to take a minute and paint the picture of what Cambridge would have looked like on Christmas Day, 1775, for that Continental Army soldier. Trees would have been cleared in every direction as far as the eye can see. They need all these trees to make little lodges, little forts, lean-tos. TPs. Um, also, they were just burning a lot of wood to try to stay warm over winter, right? And so, just this imagine this Greek, like bleak gray, cold, freezing cold. It was so cold out on Christmas Day, 1775, that they had to rotate the sentry men every hour just to keep them from freezing. Not 
not looking too good. So Santa Jesus God decides that George has been an extra good boy and delivers him a foot of snow for Christmas, abnormally cold weather, and an army that was deserting in droves. The situation was pretty dire. At year's end, only 9,650 men had signed up for the new army. That is roughly half of what Congress imagined. That's a fucking mess, right? Washington would appeal to the men's sense of honor to stay and fight, saying things like, if we lose because you went home, you will be disgraced and your home and your livelihood and family will be in peril. To contrast that, General Charles Lee, who we mentioned before was quite the hothead, lined the men all up on Christmas Day and called them the worst kinds of creatures and cursed them up one side and down the other, which I'm not a professional military man, but that's probably not the best way to encourage your men to fucking stick around, right? Sounds a lot like church. (laughs) You're all sinners. You're horrible. You're going to burn in hell. Jesus loves you. We're passing around the basket. Put the money in. Sins forgiven. So New Year's rolls around, and it's now January 1776. George is trying to keep things upbeat. He issues a New Year's Day message to his remaining troops that declares this a new army, a truly continental army. He tries to remind the men of the cause that they are fighting for. He's very publicly confident, trying to keep the spirits up for the men. But as you mentioned previously, privately, Washington was crushed, like just fucking saddy, sad, sad, crushed, spirit, soul, dead inside Christmas Day, crying to myself under my blanket on my pillow. He he's like Philip Seymour Hoffman. (laughs) Yes. Um, John Washington. John Washington. George Washington told John Hancock, it's Herbie Hancock, told John (laughs) Hancock, it is not in the pages of history, perhaps to furnish a case like ours, to maintain a post within musket shot of the enemy for six months together without powder and at the same time disband one army, the old army of 1775 and recruit another, the new army of January 1776, within viewing distance of 20-odd British regiments. So this is just a case in point again saying, these two armies were looking at each other, and on January 1st, a bunch of soldiers just fucking leave. And these camps that these British can see are dwindling down. And you can imagine that General Howe's just sitting over there like, oh, I want to pounce. And he's, but he's too fancy. He's in winter quarters. The British are not going to do that. They're fucking gentlemen. You don't fight when it's fucking cold outside. Stay inside, bundled up. Which actually kind of works to their disadvantage in the future. We'll talk about that. In another letter, he mentions how it would have been better for him. And they're they're kind of hoping that they can... I lost my thought. Go ahead. (laughs) In 
another letter, he mentions how it would have been better for him not to take command of the army at all and instead have retired into the backcountry and lived in a wigwam. George and his fucking theatrics, right? Like, oh, I should have just, I should have never taken control of this army that I kept telling people that I actually shouldn't take control of. I should have gone and lived in a wigwam with my people out in the country. Uh, very much like Bilbo Baggins. Very much so. I and think that he probably, habit. he wasn't short, but probably had big hairy feet. If I had to imagine, George, those things were pretty big, pretty hairy. Um, also, January 1776, George pardons all of the offenders from the old army. So if you had some shit back there, it's all cool. It's all good here. No, just pardoned. I'll pardon that shit all day. January 1st. Um, midday on January 1st, conflict abruptly erupted when Lord Dunmore approached Norfolk, Virginia with a fleet of ships and assaulted the town with cannon fire for seven hours, eventually destroying the whole town of Norfolk. Washington hoped this act of violence would push the colonists on the fence towards the patriotic cause. So if you're sitting there going, I wonder if the British are going to be, they'll be cool, but we can reconcile with them. Everything is going to be cool. We'll open up trade again. King George will be my king again. It'll be all good. He was hoping that after these British just violently pounded this town with cannon fire for seven hours and hearing the screams of women and children inside the town that these people would finally flip and come around to the patriotic cause. Um, interestingly enough, though, most of the damage was inflicted by Whigs. Um, a Whig is a patriot or a revolutionary, if we ever use that term, and a Tory is a royal sympathizer or loyalist to the British crown, a Brit, if you will, an American Brit. So we'll use those two terms, Tory and Whig. Um, but like I was saying, interestingly enough, most of the damage was inflicted by the Whigs to prevent the British from being able to use any supplies that were located in the area. So a lot of these people in the town decided that it would be much better to just fucking burn the thing than have these British come ashore and take anything that they could find useful in a war against George Washington. So after this, it only takes about uh, half a month for George to go back to complaining about money. He had a New Year's resolution. He's like, I'm not going to complain about the money anymore. That didn't last so long. So for as much as things are changing, some things always stay the same. Chernow in his book notes that Washington claimed that his army had no money, no powder, no cash of arms, no engineer, not even a tent for his own use in a field campaign. Animals, right? Animals. George could be a real downer. On January 10th, 1776, Thomas Paine, an intelligent yet abrasive man, who again was shit-talking George Washington, um, he was from England. Thomas Paine was from England. He had moved to the colonies, and he released this popular pamphlet called Common Sense. In the pamphlet, he called the king the royal brute of Great Britain, and talks about how the people of the colonies should cease their independence. And what perfect timing, right? We have the Norfolk Corps. We have the king announcing that rebels were now traitors in a speech that he gave to Parliament, which hugely significant. 
And then he also, in this same speech to Parliament, threatens to send mercenaries to distinguish to extinguish the uprising. The colonies needed some some unifying rhetoric. That was pretty demoralized, right? And we have this new army that needs something to rally around. So 150,000 copies of Common Sense were sold in a country of only 3 million people. That's That's all the literate people. (laughs) That is all the literate people. George Washington would actually gather his men and have this read to them. Because again, most of these men couldn't read, right? Or write. (laughs) <laughs> right. And so he would gather them around and the, he would expect the officers who were educated men to some degree would go out and read these pamphlets and stuff to the men really trying to corral them. So it was a really good time. And really, common sense just talked a lot about basically how you're an idiot if you think that the king wants to help you. And wants to be this good guy and wants to be awesome. He's a good guy. He's cool. He's not cool, is what Thomas Paine was saying. So, uh, what was... It was kind of like in Batman vs. Superman, when Batman and Superman bond over Martha! Martha! So what's Martha up to at this point? Well, George is off doing his thing, right? How's, how's Martha contributing? Did she want to contribute? What did she think about all this? Did she have a woman's day? All this war stuff. Did she have a woman's day? Did she have a woman's day? Did she find George Washington sexy in a military uniform? I bet. Um, well, Chernow says that Martha was not a naturally courageous woman. She was actually pretty afraid of death. Uh, Her first husband died. Her daughter, Patsy, died. Um, So, you know, she just wasn't, she was, like, really afraid of dying. She's like, oh, shit, it's going to happen. Her son was still out on the battlefield with George Washington. So she was afraid he was going to die. So she was afraid that she was going to die. Anyway, she wasn't really fond of traveling around. She wasn't into it. You know, George was off gallivanting everywhere. She was the one that stayed at Mount Vernon and kind of kept things running. As far as the, you know, the she was a Washington representative there, I guess. And uh, believe it or not, she, our first first lady, had a little fear of water. Which, if you're traveling around at all, you're probably going to come into some water. Also, say, like the hobbits. <laughs> They don't like water. I don't like the water. Particularly Frodo. Because. If I, no, I'm not going to. No. <laughs> I'm not bringing Hobbit lore into this. <laughs> Never mind. I'm ready. Why not? Yeah. Frodo's parents drowned in a river. Whatever. <laughs> um, but Martha was a determined woman. Uh, Chernow said that she mustered the strength of a Spartan wife, which I think was partly wifely duty, right? And part of it, I think, was patriotism. I think she was a patriot. I think that she 
embraced the ideas of her husband and was a very patriotic woman. She talked about hardships and whenever she she mentioned them, she had a saying, she said, I am still determined to be cheerful and happy in whatever situation I may be. So she was a little stoic, right? Perhaps Washington was actually really afraid that she was going to be kidnapped, which was like, this was a real fear, right? Uh, one would like to assume there is some decorum between gentlemen and war. And we kind of talked about this in a previous episode, Justin. But seriously, Washington was really afraid she was going to be abducted. Someone was going to come to her house and kill her, take her, hold her for ransom, whatever. By October of 1775, Washington knew that he wasn't going to be able to spend his winter at Mount Vernon like he initially thought. So he did invite Martha to Cambridge. And I kind of wanted to talk about how Martha was afraid of all these things. And then she gets this letter from her husband inviting her to join him in Cambridge. It wasn't an easy journey from Mount Vernon to Cambridge. And Washington knew this would be uh, really, really hard and left it up to her. He's not an animal. He's no animal here. And she decided that she actually wanted to come be with him at camp. She left on November 16th, 1775 to head towards her husband. She delayed this weeks and weeks and weeks. She actually pushed the date of this off because she was so afraid of going on this journey. Didn't want the water, didn't want to die. So she wasn't, she wasn't, she was just putting it off. And then she realized that if she waited any further, that she wouldn't actually make it there by the time that winter came. So she would head off. Her travel to her husband was actually a really odd experience for her. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance when it came to being the general's wife. Every town that they would go through would have church bells. They would have light horse cavalry escort. They had a really fancy coach for her. Her belongings were all packed in fancy leather trunks. Um, She didn't really get all the fuss over her, though. She's like, yeah, like, I've got some nice things and I'm going to go hang out with my husband. But like, I don't really get she was just a very simple woman. She arrived in Cambridge on December 11th, 1775, and she hadn't seen George since May. Justin, do you think they uh, think they went to Pound Town? Yes. I think that well, they went. Well, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Because I think they probably, I don't do know, Spanish fly. Spanish fly. <laughs> He hasn't gotten many shipments from Britain in a while. (laughs) Is he packing the Spanish fly? (laughs) Did he save some Spanish fly? Did he figure out how to make the Spanish fly? Um, We do know that he did. There are a lot of questions about George's dick. (laughs) And I'm not prepared to answer it. But speaking of Pound Town... When uh, you were talking about, where was it? The, the, the pounding of Norfolk. Yeah, the pounding. I went ahead and, uh, while you were talking, made myself uh, the pounding of <laughs> Norfolk Brazzers meme. <laughs> which I may make available <laughs> at a later date. <laughs> Because it's a masterpiece. <laughs> I heard you working over there. I was like, what's he doing over there? 
What are we doing? I was memeing. <laughs> you put out a lot of really good shark memes today, by the way. It's shark week. <laughs> where you're allowed to make shark memes. <laughs> and I, I'm good at making shark memes. <laughs> you're really good at you I made don't a care lot what other of people say. You made a lot of shark memes. Uh, I'm backed up. <laughs> <laughs> Proceed. So we don't really know whether or not they went to pound town, but we do know that he ordered a four curtain post bed for privacy. So picture this. They were basically in a big room with all of his family, his military officers. And in there was just a four post bed where he and his wife would sleep while everyone was kind of like working and doing things. So, yeah. Uh, fun fact, also, the war would drag on for 103 months in total. Uh, the ladies at the Mount Vernon Association estimate that she spent between 52 and 54 months with George Washington. So she spent more than half of the war with the troops, right? That's kind of sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't realize she spent no so much more. time. You don't kind of see that dedication no more. Were they in love? I did kind of, I did, I did very quickly dig up something. And Nathaniel Green did write to, his, write to his wife. Miss Washington is excessively fond of the general and he of her. They are happy together. So the love was there, by the way. Just wanted to, uh, by the, ooh, this woman seriously had some balls. So there's a, there's a story that says that one time some people approached her about a ball that was going to be held at a local tavern. And she went ahead and was like, no, nah, I think that that's an inappropriate wartime activity. She didn't talk to her husband. She didn't consult with anybody. She just went and there was like, I don't think this is a good idea. I think this is a bad idea. And, you know, we're, not, we're just not going to do it. And so she canceled that, which was actually, I think, is, says a lot about her and about being that Spartan wife where she w- had n- not really a fear of kind of setting out and making her mind known. She also brought a homey sense to the camp. She needed stockings for the men, which were desperately needed. She took care of entertaining the men, the officers is what I mean by the men, and provided morning and afternoon snacks for them. How nice. She entertained the guest to camp, a lot of poets painters, playwrights, historians would come to the camp during winter quarters and kind of want to check out the men, see the scene. Also, another weird thing, kind of talking about how she did a lot and and was the general's wife. She never wrote her own letters. She didn't write her own official correspondence. She actually wasn't that intelligent. She was pretty simple. She was intelligent, but she was a simple lady, not educated, I guess we can put it that way, not highly educated. So in order to make her sound official and more intelligent and intellectual than she was, her, all of her official correspondence got a little polishing, which I don't think she actually minded at all. Um, at this time in the camp when they're, in, when they're in winter quarters, we hear some flirting rumors. With Sally Fairfax out of the picture, George needs to fill his need for some discreet flirtation. He's a lady man, after all, right? He's a lady's man, after all. Um, so Katie Green, who was the wife of Nathaniel Green, who actually named their son George Washington Green, 
Weird. Washington would kind of play with Katie. He would say things like, oh, you're you're Quaker preacher husband over there, you know, kind of would fool around with her a little bit in that way, make her like tease her, make her laugh. And we do know actually that Martha was fond of Katie. So I actually think that that's probably, it was probably okay. I think she saw that he, he just was a person having fun, a ladies man. It was also this year in the camp that George actually, and we talked uh, a little bit about how he was changing his ideas about what he thought about slavery, perhaps, what he thought about black people in general, black people being free in general. Washington actually befriended a slave named Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley wrote a poem that Washington liked. From what we know about Phyllis Wheatley, she was gifted and educated. She was a slave. She was 22 years old when she wrote this poem, but she was a a slave when her family, I guess for a lack of a better term, her master, discovered that she was talented. He educated her and kind of gave her a room and treated him as part of the family, although she was definitely still a slave, for sure. The poem that she wrote goes like this. Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side. Thy every action let thy goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, a throne that shines with gold unfading. Washington, be thine. What do you think about that, Justin? Hard as a rock. (laughs) Nothing like a little slave poetry to set you in motion. I know that's how it goes. Washington actually did write her a letter after getting this poem, praising her talents, and he literally invited her to Cambridge for a reception. It didn't really bother Washington that she was a slave in this way. Maybe he didn't even recognize it first. I'm just kidding. I'm sure he knew. But he did eventually receive her at the camp, and apparently they got along just fine. They talked and they joked, and he would speak to her just like he would speak any other educated woman of the gentry. So I think we start seeing in him allowing black troops into the military, in him having a reception with Phyllis Wheatley, that perhaps his ideas on slavery and black people are evolving and changing in their dynamic. He's willing to learn and kind of take a new route, I guess. Yeah, he's a human, and I like that. He's a human. So, Justin, I I also, I feel bad about my heart is a rock statement. (laughs) So I'd like to, in editing, change that to, (laughs) well, I wish somebody would write me a nice poem. Nobody's ever written me a poem. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Am I going to die alone? Because that's what I was really thinking. (laughs) Is that laughing or crying over there, Justin? Is that laughing or crying? It's laughter now. Be tears later. (laughs) So I think I think we've actually we talked a little bit about the camp at Cambridge over the winter. I think it's now time to get to your favorite part of this episode. This is my very, this is one of my favorite subjects of the whole podcast. 
Washington's personal guard. <laughs> and Washington, like we've mentioned before, he tried to make it sound like he wasn't afraid of assassination. Rather, he was afraid of kidnappings, particularly because he would fuck up at trying to capture British generals. <laughs> this is something that he would have really liked to have done. And we'll get into the whole spying thing later. But he would have loved to pull off some heists of British generals. <laughs> he wanted them. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like when someone hires a private investigator to spy on their significant other because they themselves are cheating on their significant other. It's kind of one of those deals. So in order to be prepared for such events, he needed, he needed a personal guard. And Ryan, do you know what his personal guard was known as? What was that personal guard known as, Justin? Well, I'm glad you asked. It was known as lifeguard. Oh, that lifeguard. Big crosses. Were they wearing? Were they wearing white shirts that that had the straps, little little wife beaters, little tank tops? Thin, like maybe half a size too small. <laughs> That's right. They were called Baywatch. <laughs> and that's actually the, uh, the of the show, the popular 90s show, Baywatch. <laughs> it's a fact. In 1776, he ordered four men to be picked from each re- regiment for the Mitch Buchanan Guard. And that's <laughs> actually what it was named. Super weird how specific his instructions were for these oddly, two. Oddly specific. They had to be 5'8 and 5'10. Handsomely and well-made, a.k.a. hot as fuck. Hot, hot, hot. He wanted clean dudes. They were to be neat and spruce. And this is getting super fucking weird, George. (laughs) And it gets even stranger the following year. He narrowed down the height range of Magic Mike personal guard to 5'9 to 5'10. They had to be sober, young, active, and well-made to make it into his personal guard. And I think that we need to emphasize the sexy part. They had to be Wouldn't handsome. You agree? They had to be handsome, and he was going to dress them. <laughs> I 
Hey, George. I'm 5'9". I'm handsome. I come from a gentried family. I have most of my teeth. My daddy owns land, I promise. <laughs> so yeah, was George looking comes, for a sugar baby? I'm very confused about the whole thing. And I would do more <laughs> research into it. But I just like my imagination more. <laughs> so then he comes right out and says he wants them to be native-born, from good families, landowners. Hmm. Convenient. This is... I love this so much. <laughs> That's what I like history for. <laughs> oh, and he designed special uniforms for them. A very special some... uniform. I won't get into detail because this is getting long. But there was, but there was some bear fur definitely but involved. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. There <laughs> were some nice hats with blue and white feathers. <laughs> Yeah, I put out put in some fucking bearskin strips yep. on those Baywatch. <laughs> Definitely the bearskin strips, I think, were my favorite. Oh, I'm having fun. <laughs> so, moving on from the Magic Mike XXL personal bodyguard of George Washington, I do want to talk about a little fort called Ticonderoga. You see... Back in May of 1775, Benny Arnold and Ethan Allen, the furniture maker, just kidding, not the furniture maker, captured a fort called Ticonderoga. There were so few soldiers that all that Ethan Allen, the furniture maker, had to do was wander up to the fort and say to the commander, I'm not shitting you. He said this, come out, you old rat. And yeah, the guy came out and like handed his sword over to Ethan Allen, the furniture maker, and said, here you go. There were 83 Patriots versus 45 British. Benny Arnold first thought of a plan to move all the armaments that they captured from this fort. So he's like, oh, we have all these armaments here. We should probably take them and move them. But he had trouble organizing the transport of the musician, the munitions. Also, he was squabbling with the other military leaders over who was in charge of some of the forts they just recently captured. So Benedict Arnold wanted to actually take and ship all these armaments out of the fort. But what happens instead? In November of 1775, Washington appoints Henry Knox as head of an expedition to retrieve armaments. And he sent Philip Schuyler along with him to go head up and get some of these guns. I want my gun. The journey was called the Noble Train of Artillery. En route to the fort, Knox, interestingly enough, will meet a prisoner named John Andre. This is a pretty big coincidence. We will definitely talk more about Andre later. So General Knox arrives at the fort in early December. He selects 59 pieces of equipment. They had 24-pounders, they had mortars, and they had howitzers, all basically cannons. The total estimated weight is to be around 119,000 pounds, or roughly about 60 tons. The largest pieces were the 24-pounders. They were called Big Berthas. They were 11 feet, and they weighed two and a half tons apiece. So Henry Knox was sent out to go get 60 tons of equipment and haul it back to Cambridge. Henry Knox, being this wonderful military mind engineer, 
decided to move them using a combination of oxen, around 80 oxen, they had some sleds, and they had some small ships. Knox initially thought that the trip would only take about two weeks. However, in total, it took him about eh, 10, just a little off. Although, interestingly enough, he kept cost of his expenses. George gave him a thousand pounds to spend on the mission. He only spent 521 of those, so he was good with the money. And that's why we have Fort Knox now. And that's why we have Fort Knox. Well, actually, we have Fort Knox because this son of a bitch in the fucking freezing cold of winter moved 60 tons of equipment. Sometimes it was helped because the guns could be easily moved over ice, right? You put them on a sled. It's cold outside. And let's just slide these bitches around. But sometimes it was hindered because the cannons would fall through the ice in rivers and streams. And every single fucking time that they had one of these things fall through the ice, the largest ones being two and a half tons, Knox would go have them recovered. He didn't lose a single piece of the 59 pieces that he set out to transport back to George Washington. On their way back, they would move through all of these cities, right, with all this equipment, and people would come out and just check out this massive engineering feat where 59 pieces of equipment, 60 tons. This is unseen in that kind of day, moving this amount of military equipment around just through fields, hauling it fucking around. Here we go. John Adams even reported of actually seeing these huge trains moving through the cities, hauling all of this back to Cambridge. Knox personally met up with Washington on January 27, 1776 to deliver the news that the artillery had arrived. And that is fucking awesome because now that Washington had some guns, it might be time to attack. Although, damn it, still lacking some gunpowder. You want to know what Benjamin Franklin recommended, Justin? I do want to know. So this fuck recommended no joke you know what forget the guns forget the guns george and benjamin franklin let's just (laughs) use some fucking bows and arrows and he said i quote those were good weapons not wisely laid aside good plan ben way to fucking go i think that your time will be better spent having orgies in france thank you very much I kind of like Ben's idea. <laughs> just give him a, you know what? Just get, get the bows and arrows. You don't need gunpowder. <laughs> to defeat the largest superpower. You're right. The, you know I what? think the, that they could have really used that shit later on. Trying to defend New, New York. New York. Because gunpowder and rain does not mix no yeah that does kind of that does kind of fuck some shit up but Um, you know what ben we do we're not like we don't have a generation of experienced bowmen yeah sorry sorry about that not a good plan um so with all this new stuff coming in george is thinking about i should attack boston i want some war action super bad And what he thought was that he could wait until the waterway between them and the British were frozen. Um, Reminder, 
The British were in Boston, and the Continental Army was just north of them, just across the river in Cambridge. It was only a river that was separating them. So George thought, I bet I can wait until the river is frozen, and we'll just give it a cross. We'll just walk across. That's totally cool. Although I'm not certain he thought conversely that the British could also just walk across. Um, and yeah, Washington- it's quite a distance. It's not a it's not a uh, a narrow river like no. you would think of it. Right? No, it's not a tiny stream. It is it is a larger river that will actually take a significant amount of time to freeze over. And seriously, Washington was out there like every fucking day looking at this river, like. Uh, is this solid enough for us to walk across yet? Because I kind of want to go talk to my generals about just crossing this bitch. And so he presents this idea to his generals. And like we said, he listens to his generals. And they were all like, mm, uh, we don't actually think you have enough gunpowder to soften the British before we land an attack. And actually, we don't even believe your estimates of the size of their army or our army is correct. So like, you know, I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna walk across. Yeah, which then and he leads, never. Go he never really abandons that idea either. No, he wants to. He he's really into it. Yeah. So instead, Washington wants to fort, fortify Dort, Dort, Dorchester the Heights. Chest. Dorchester Heights loomed. 100 feet high over South Boston. It was hella icy, and it would have been such a bitch to get there, build fortifications, and be ready to defend before General Howe gets a chance to intervene. There's also the almost impossible task of hauling their big guns up there without the British just smashing them with cannons on their way. So it's going to take a careful plan, almost George W. Bush-like strategy. So the plan is to get artillery up to the heights under the cover of night. Washington has a brilliant idea to wrap wagon wheels in hay to silence the noise. At the same time, they're going to draw attention by firing cannons from three other locations. Other, impl- other plans include putting up bales of hay to obstruct the British view. We're going to put up bales of hay to obstruct Al-Qaeda. They won't see us. It'll be great. They won't see us moving our guns. Weapons of mass destruction. We have bales of hay like my at my ranch in texas and they're also going to need to put together fortifications ahead of time like they're gonna need to put together most of their legos before they get there (laughs) carry the pre-assembled legos with them yeah this is kind of a lot like blazing saddles they need to build a replica town and do all this shit to pull it off it sounds crazy, and it just might work. And it just might work. Um, so, so before 
we talk about what actually goes on, I did want to just quickly describe, again, if you're looking at a map, because I think sometimes it's like a little hard and confused to like think about where we're talking about. If you're looking yeah, at a map. If you're really dumb, you can look at a map. Uh, well, maybe we'll even put a map up. But if, but if you're, let's say you're looking at a map and in the center of the map, you want to go ahead and put Boston. So Boston's in the center. Over to the left, you have a little big, big river. And then up a little inlet on that river, you have Cambridge. So that's kind of, they're equally parallel to one another. And then just north of that are the Dorchester Heights. So this is kind of this, this area that we're talking about. So he wants to move some guys up into these heights and thinks that he can get an advantage of shooting cannons down, cannonballs and whatnot, down into Boston to soften the British, just hail down, rain down all these cannons from this heights that is up just north of the Boston area. Because um, right now where he's sitting in Cambridge is at the same l- sea level, if you will, to Cambridge, and he can't volley anything far enough in to Boston. He wants to get a little height. So how he this wants thing- to get the British... They have no choice but to to charge. Right. Or evacuate. Charge or evacuate is what he would prefer. Right. So how did all this shit go down? Well, like Justin said, there were some pre-assembled fortifications. They wanted to muffle the noise of those cannons they were moving around, all the people that they were moving around, all these pre-assembled fortifications they were moving around. So on midnight at March 2nd, 1776, the Patriots begin firing volleys into the British. They've wrapped all these can wheels in hay so they can push them around and they won't be heard. They throw up these bales of hay to block the movement. They have these earth-filled barrels that they stack in front of this quickly assembled fort so that it looks a little stronger and more impregnable than it, it actually is. And Washington who kind of had taught his men to be quiet before, was like, fucking seriously, no fucking around, quiet time. It's quiet time. Because I think he you know, really wanted to instill in his men that if the British found out what they were doing and came to harass them, the whole war would be over, basically. He just didn't have the, the manpower to, to deal with all of it at that time. And really, again, this whole thing was to set the British up into conditions that would give the Patriots any favorable advantage. And so, like I was saying, on the march of the night of March 2nd at midnight, the Patriots began firing those volleys. Then the weather was perfect. There was haze in the valley down in Boston and Cambridge, kind of covering up the water areas. And then up at the heist, there was nothing but full moonlight, crystal clear. 3,000 soldiers aided by oxen moved all of these cargoes up the hill. The ground was covered in ice two feet thick at points. Just fucking shit show, right? And overnight, this fortress on a hill was assembled. Washington observed all of this and encouraged his men by inspecting all the action atop his horse. He always was, I think it's something to state, he was always with his men. There was always, they felt that he was with them, that he was encouraging them. We'll kind of talk more about that later, but he was there. He was observing them. He was on the hillside. The next day, when General Howe woke up 
and looked out of his window up onto the hill, he's, it is rumored that he has said, my God, these fellows have done more work in one night than I could make my army do in three months. This was a serious, serious feat. And that was just the first phase of his plan. The second phase of his plan was for Generals Sullivan, Green, and Putnam to quickly move 4,000 troops across the Charles River, not giving it up. And he would invade Boston. Wait, would invade Boston if troops left to go attack? So, yeah, the second phase was if the troops, if British troops moved north to fight at Dorchester Heights, these 4,000 troops by General Sullivan, Green, and Putnam would force themselves into Boston and fight, fight them off and try to take the town of Boston while they basically these troops were fighting elsewhere. Except... But oh shit, it starts to rain. Then it starts to storm. And... Womp, womp, womp. Womp, womp, womp. Womp, Then it's obvious that the plan isn't going to go down. The British are not going to charge out and into the storm. George is pissed. He's pissed at the storm. He's pissed at rain. He had the perfect plan. But did he really? He just really wanted to walk across that ice. Yeah, the storm probably saved his ass because the second phase of his plan involved his three generals crossing a mile of open water straight into a well-entrenched Boston. Oh, that thing... Oh, yeah, that thing was, I mean, very seriously armed. More, more so than he originally anticipated, for sure. He kind of needed the entire garrison to be deployed against his fortification. There's too much experience in the British Army for that to happen. So really, they, they could have just been crushed by the British. Oh, they could have been destroyed by the British, arrival, absolutely. Arrival. Yeah. yeah. Bummer, no, dude. No, I really think I think that the storm really did save him. I think that I think that had he wandered in there, I think he would have attempted to, as he does with every military encounter, just fucking fight through the damn thing. And they were just way too entrenched in the city. They they had been there for months. They had plenty of time to build that shit up, and they were ready for the patriots to definitely come in there. However, ironically, the British on March 9th unload about 700 cannon rounds on Dorchester Heights, which what does that mean? They were covering an evacuation. The British, soon after the Patriots set up on Dorchester Heights, they set up. I mean, they, they leave camp. They pick up and they leave. Why is this? Well, Basically, you don't want to be sitting in a town where there's a bunch of cannons sitting above you. George didn't even have to push into Boston to make them leave. He just had to set up a military encampment that was providing a little bit of leverage for him against the British, and they just wanted to leave. I thought it was kind of some some funny and funny, not so funny thing about the loyalist or the Tories that was sta- that were staying in town that the royal sympathizers. They were like, oh, shit, the British are leaving. They're fucking not taking us with them. We partied and enjoyed 
this whole time together. And these people can fucking see us over there having a good time with all these British people over here. We're fucked. We're going to evacuate. We're going to, we're going to, they were flooding the Harbor and trying to get on any boat they could to get the fuck out. And many of them even jumped to their death, which is kind of funny the way that George speaks about it, because he was kind of like, yeah, they probably deserved it. Yeah. They did the right thing. They should have killed themselves, you know? So there's that. So yeah, the British left Boston, Washington moves on in. Yeah. And Washington is probably going friggin' nuts in his head at least, but he keeps his cool. Be cool. He acts like a mature lady and he's, very thoughtful in this whole process. He makes sure the first 500 men to enter the city have already been inoculated for smallpox. And he sends General Ward in before himself. This means that there's not going to be a parade. There's no big celebration. He wasn't even the first general to go into the city. I was, I was also thinking, I was just thinking about the, uh, the way that the British fortified Boston. It kind of makes me think about like, have you seen, I mean, maybe not, but like the last hunger games, how like that whole fucking city is nothing but booby trapped. Like, yeah. Yeah. The British, (laughs) the British fortified seriously the fuck out of that things, uh, out of that thing, hunger games style for sure. Um, spoils of war. Do you know what the spoils of war were? Justin, Mm, nope. Well, it was 30 cannons, 3,000 blankets, 5,000 bushels of wheat, 35,000 planks of wood, and no smallpox. But like we said, the British were kind of planning to evacuate anyway. So it's cool that George kind of kept his cool about the whole thing. Yeah, he does. He keeps his cool. There's not going to be much of the rape and pillage Viking shit. Yeah, he none of that. forbids his troops from doing that kind of stuff. He even protect, protects the the ones that didn't, the loyalists that did not free. He, flee. Was, he was pretty big on that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No heads on spikes. But on the other hand, he does write to his brother Jack saying, give me a hell yeah. Hell yeah. Jack writes back, hell yeah. Hell yeah. They had so many more troops than us, Jack. You should have seen me. You should have seen it. I was great. up a hill. I made America great. We just walked right the F in. Again. This war is going to be a piece of cake. I may go undefeated. So much easier than I thought it was going to be. Washington did receive a Harvard (laughs) degree due to this whole thing. That's true. Yeah. So did Stephen Colter. <laughs> um, and actually, Washington at the end of this gave some praise to his men, which is not something that he was known really to do because he was like fucking always mad at them because they were like shooting their guns off and swimming naked and doing all sorts of crazy, ridiculous things that a bunch of heathens would do. But after this, I think Washington was like, hey, you know what? It's, it is time to sprinkle a little bit of that love and affection in there, you know, need more love and affection, you know. Um, 
Praise in public, punish in private. That's how you do it. Where are the British going to go? They're leaving Boston. They're going to go to New York. They already have a presence Just like Babe Ruth. (laughs) That's kind of funny. Basically, New York is a very interesting place, I think, for the British in a couple ways. New York was called Torytown because it was a stronghold for the Tories. Remember, those were the British sympathizers, the royalists. Um, basically, some shit, shit in New York was set up in such a way that most of the leadership of New York were loyalists. Charles Lee was originally stationed in New York to help keep New York out of the British hands. And that guy was kind of a, a bitch, right? Like, we, we know that Lee was just a foul-mouthed man with no patience for anything. So for him being a military leader of a very large city, basically just pissed all these people off. And we're like, who the hell is this guy that wants to claim all this independence? We don't really want that. And now this guy's stationed here to try to keep the British from coming in here. We don't like him. Um, there were also some really weird uh, military things that were going on between New York as a colony and some of the other colonies around it. Um, some people from the other colonies, specifically Connecticut, conducted raids of the New York military storehouses, um, as well as harassed loyalist merchants and printers. But those raids on the storehouse were pretty much looked like the wars at Lexington and Concord. Lexington and Concord, some way the, the skirmish there. Because basically, this military power from a place that's not New York was coming into New York and taking stuff because of those loyalist New York leaders. They were afraid that if New York fell into the wrong hands, that all of these supplies would go into the wrong hands, would go into the British. So uh, the Connecticut militia would come down and basically steal all that stuff. So these New York people were basically pissed at Connecticut and some of the other colonies. They had loyalist leaders. It was just a safe place for people who liked Brits to be. Typical. Yeah, what we're trying to say is that New York is a lot more complex than Boston. Yeah, you're not just going to go up there on some heights and put some guns and have the have the British leave. They are in a they would be in a very safe place with a lot of people and have extreme military advantage in a place like New York with all of its harbors and British being a massive naval military power. So definitely New York would have been a really good spot. Right. So George has to march in and start playing the defense of this city, which is rich with waterways and fucking swamps and woods and hills and you know, kind of like it is now. So like we said, General Lee is there before Washington and he starts wetting his bed because of how enormous the task of this defense is going to be. I probably, to be honest, I would have just burned the fucking place down. Yeah, I think that would have been the easier solution. And left. And it's the better military strategy. (laughs) It's just... There's just so many places that a powerhouse Navy can surround and pound. 
So George arrives, followed by Martha four days later. Martha! And George makes his headquarters on Lower Broadway. Maybe he wanted to catch a show or two. He was into that he theater, remember? Theater. A man by of the June, theater. By June, he had 121 can- cannons from Manhattan to New Jersey and barricaded the end of every street. He's gaining some confidence in the pr- progress until he learns that the British have hired some 17,000 Hessian mercenaries. Uh-oh. Future Nazis. <laughs> Upon finding out that King George hired these 7,000, seven, sorry, bleep, beep, boop. Upon finding that George III hired 17,000 German mercenaries, Hessian German mercenaries, Washington heads to Philadelphia to consult with Congress. This is May 1776 we're talking about here. There was lots of talk about declaring independence from Great Britain at this time, but Washington abstained. He didn't really believe that was part of the military affairs, but he did want to go talk to them about some money issues. Like, hey guys, got a lot of dudes coming that we're going to need to fight. Washington needs Congress to help him. And Congress agrees to offer $10 bounty to everyone that can sign up for the army, which actually is a pretty big deal. Yeah, $10 hour back then would get you more than a dime bag of weed. Hey... No, but I wonder how much, I wonder if, hmm, I wonder if weed was a currency back then. They just grew it and smoked it. That's a dumb question. Anyway, also during this time, they set up a board of war. Washington really wanted them to have a group of people that he could go to and have conversations with about supply distribution, recruiting, money, a liaison for the military to Congress that was not George Washington himself. And so John Adams takes on this task. Of course he does. John Adams was doing fucking everything back then. So John Adams takes on this task of setting up a board of war and will then take over again the supply distribution and recruiting specifically for the army. Let us not forget also, George had Martha with him. Martha came to Philadelphia with him and promised that she was going to get inoculated. To be honest with you, George did not believe this to be true because she was such a baby about it on all occurrences of her having to get inoculation. But finally she goes ahead and does it because again, not only was he afraid of her being kidnapped, he was afraid that if she was going to accompany him to all of these different places, that it is a possibility that the British could have infiltrated a place where they've gone, sent them smallpox, She could just catch smallpox because it's something that goes around when you have a bunch of people together pooping and doing all their bathing and, you know, the same place. It's not good. So she finally bucks up and gets that inoculation. Good for Martha. Good for her. Had to save Martha. Like we mentioned, this is not patriotic New England. George is going to need his Magic Mike XXXL guard more than ever. But shit, what if Channing Tatum is plotting against him? He wouldn't do that. Oh, yeah. Well, a loyalist gets arrested for counterfeiting charges and turns immediately snitch. Snap. 
and gets stitches later. <laughs> His name is Isaac Ketchum. And Sound, he's like, he sounds handsome. You're thinking of Meacham. <laughs> House of Cards. But Isaac Ketchum, who also invented ketchup, is like, hey, yo, Channing Tatum is going to betray your ass. And Channing Tatum, in this instance, is a member of Washington's personal guard named Thomas Hickey. And that's why you don't want to give hickeys. So I guess that height between 5'9 and 5'10 and abs isn't the best criteria for your personal guard, George. Even Chancellor Palpatine knew that. (laughs) So now a wide probe is launched into the Hoth-sized plan of treason and sabotage. How wide was that probe? The British are paying turncoats via supplying money to the mayor of New York, a guy named David Matthews. Did you say David Matthews? David Matthews. You know, that's an easy connection to make. I'm more sophisticated (laughs) than that. So, Mr. Feeney arrests Mr. Matthews at (laughs) 1 a.m. Mr. Matthews, Romeo and Juliet is Shakespeare's ultimate testament of love between a man and a woman. Something I can do for you, Mr. Matthews? Good evening, Mr. Matthews. Care to join me for a drink? Champions of what, Mr. Matthews? Good morning, Mr. Matthews. I trust you've done the homework. Yes, I did, sir. But my little sister ate it. You are so predictable. Oh, Mr. Feeney. <laughs> Feeney? A Feeney, Feeney, Feeney? <laughs> Later on, after the war, spoiler alert, America wins. Mr. Matthews admitted to have plans to capture Washington for the British. Like, what? Say what? This uh, Channing Tatum conspiracy went deep. So a dozen arrests go down, and the Patriots rally, torture, and tar and feather some loyalists. (laughs) American (laughs) fun. Sounds like fun. It's ugly. Channing Tatum is court-martialed. It's revealed (laughs) that the conspirators had planned to sabotage Patriot cannons, and 700 Patriots had committed to defect. Uh Uh-oh. And that includes... Eight of the Magic Mike XXXL guard. Uh oh. Channing is found guilty of sedition and mutiny. The Magic Mike XXXL will not have a fourth movie. No. And he's gonna he's gonna hang. He's gonna hang. And uh, I think that's a good stopping point. Yeah, we can we land the ship there. We went a little long this time. She was a little long in the tooth. We had to deliver for you guys. We had a little catching up to do. Hey, thank you all, seriously, honestly, for taking a listen. If you wouldn't mind, uh, head over to iTunes. Give us a little review, even if you hate our show. Um, Also, hit us up at contact at POTUS.life. Again, that's contact at POTUS.life. 
and let us know if you're interested in coming out and maybe hanging out with us uh, if you live in the D.C. area and we're, we're there to grab a drink. April? Yeah, and bring us presents. Yeah, presents is always good. Presents are always good. And specifically, expensive scotch. Bye, friends. Bye, friends. Bye-bye. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land. With the mason ring and trouser in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington.